Cassie, uh, Cassie gave the sermon before the sermon, no lie. Um, hey, my name is Josh. I serve as a pastor here at Refuge. Hi, Patrick. Um, <laughs> um, thanks for being here today. Realistically, you could have been absolutely anywhere this morning. Uh, you could have been at another church. You could have been on vacation. You could have been at some uh, weird brunch spot eating $15 avocado toast. But instead... You're here, and I want to say thank you for that. Before we jump into our time in the Word, I have a couple of exciting, and I want to emphasize exciting, uh, little notes before we get started. The first one uh, is that Daniel and Celeste Cleveland welcomed their baby boy yesterday morning. Yeah, yeah, and so um, def- I-, I had in my notes, you can clap your hands for that because I was going to encourage you, but you did it on your own, and I'm very thankful. Um, Hey, praise God for a healthy baby and a healthy mama. You also told me to tell y'all thank you uh, for your generosity with the Grubhub gift card. Uh, And so that's incredible and incredibly generous of y'all. And so thank you so much for that. Uh, And so while we just dedicated some littles last week between uh, Sam and Manuel's baby and the new Cleveland edition, we already got the new babies to dedicate on deck here. So uh, I was going to make a wildly inappropriate joke. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Jesus. He's here, y'all. He's here. Uh, okay, so uh, with that, though, thank y'all. I think I'm going to save the second. Actually, I have, it, I have it here, but I'm going to save the second little exciting note at, for the end. So let's just, I'm going to save that. So we'll just put a pin in there and we'll come back to it. As we get started today, I want to start today with a story to try and help frame, uh, as I often desire to or want to, kind of a little bit of what we're talking about today. Uh, in 1979, the Dallas Times Herald reported a a uh, story of a young man who was walking down the street. And as he was walking down the street, I believe it was there in Dallas, he found two sacks lying in the street. And when he looked inside, he was amazed to find that the sacks were full of what? Money. Yeah, y'all got it. It's money. Yeah. I'm going to take gold as meaning money because we're not, like, it's not pirates. But, um, yeah, filled with money. Uh, as he started counting, it was a large sum of money. In fact, it was $415,000. That is quite a bit of money quite a bit of money. And I was 1979, so I'm assuming it's worth more now, and so it would have looked like even more then. Well, when uh, the young man had the internal wrestling, as you might imagine, he took it uh, to the Princeton Armored Service uh, that from where it came, he received a, a gift, a, a thank you of $1,000. And the youth, however, was very unhappy and said he expected a larger reward. He said, I don't understand it, he complained. If I had to do things over again, I would have probably just kept the money. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because the reality of our lives, for most of us, is this, that it's not every day we encounter something that lays bare the intentions of our heart. It's not every day we encounter that. It's so easy to walk about in our day and our lives and assume that we're good people, that we have good intentions. Uh, that we have pure hearts, and that we, we, we're just leaving behind us a trail of blessing. We assume we're great people who love God and who love others, and we feel like we're doing great, but when the true intentions of our hearts are left unchecked, uh, when we assume we're doing better than we are, uh, what oftentimes can happen, if we're not careful, is we can easily, when moments that are actually quite tricky and quite challenging, when we come up against them and the intentions of our heart the, 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 the real purity of our heart is tested, it can end up failing. And rather than leaving behind a trail of blessing, we look back and realize due to the intentions of our heart, we've left behind a trail of pain 
masked by good deeds. And looking back, um, we can leave ourselves realistically, uh, leave ourselves and leave others riddled with the question of how we ever did such a thing. How did I do that? Why did I do that? I never thought I would have done that. What led me to that? Friends, it's not every day that we encounter something that can lay bare the true motivations and intentions of our heart. And when we do, the results and consequences can be terrifying. They can leave our hearts with a lot of sorrow, with a lot of fear, with a lot of insecurity. And yet, in the ways and teachings of Jesus, contradictory to, to what we may instinctively feel because of that fear, we're called to bring the depths of our hearts, like the deepest intentions of our hearts, the deepest motivations of, of who we are, those really great parts, absolutely, but also the parts that are rotten and are dark. And if you're being honest and I'm being honest, we hide them away in a corner uh, and in a closet under a rug, wherever we can find a hiding spot. And we secure it by putting something over it or by locking the door or by doing whatever we can because we just know, hey, I don't want anyone to see that. And yet in the ways and teachings of Jesus, he invites us, bring all of it to me and offer it to me on the altar of my kindness and my mercy. And when we do that, when we follow his ways, we come and we offer ourselves in whole, and we're honest about it. We experience what it means to be seen, but then also to be forgiven, to be loved, to be healed, and then ultimately to be molded into something new. The question then, I believe, is how does that happen, though? How do we go from walking around unknowingly leaving behind a trail of pain from proud but ignorant footsteps to known, humbled, loved, transformed follower of Jesus? How does that happen? Uh, and here's the thing, that's a whole different sermon series to get into. But I know the starting place, the starting place for every believer is God's word. That's the starting place for every single follower of Jesus. The great French theologian John Calvin once said, wherever we see the word of God sincerely preached and heard, there we cannot have any doubt that the church of God has some existence. Why? Because the word is the first place we encounter the cosmic truth, right? The, the light bursting into the darkness, the, the truth of God's beauty and God's goodness. And when that light shines so powerfully, it starts to reveal the darkest corners of our lives, the darkest corners of our hearts, the things that we've hidden away, the things that we've tried to hide from everyone else. But here's the thing. What we believe happens after those vulnerable moments will frame everything about that brightness. What we believe happens after those vulnerable moments where it feels like God's light has shone so brightly that it reveals the darkest parts of who we are, the parts that we want to hide, what we believe happens after those moments will frame everything about that experience. It'll frame whether we're going to be terrified and filled with sorrow and filled with fear, or whether those moments are going to lead us into an incredible adventure of faith and faithfulness, mercy and molding, humility and healing, all depending on how we perceive those moments. Today, we're kind of in our first week after the introduction uh, of a certain series called Ecclesia. Very weird, very, very weird title, I know, but it's the word used for church in the New Testament. And we're exploring Acts 2, uh, and we're really going through the early church and seeing what they were shaped by, what they were molded by. And this week, we're very much starting from the foundation, which is God's word. 
And uh, I, I'm not, I feel like I have a lot of different directions that I, I kind of want to go. And if I'm being honest with you, after a week away, I'm still, like, as I'm up here filing through what I'm going to cut in a lot of ways. So I don't have a tweet, kind of sermon in a tweet note, but I do want to get started. I want to start by simply reading our text today. And it's this, Acts 2, 41 through 42. And if you would stand with me uh, in reverence of God's word, what we believe to be his inspired word. And I'm going to read it, and then afterwards I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say... Oh, we're going to run that back. You're going to say? All right, that's very better, very much better. All right, so uh, Acts 2, 41 through 42 says this. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Can you, can you really imagine... Right? Can you imagine the feelings of awe and amazement when this fledgling group of 120 waiting in the upper room for the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to finally come, finally came. And they started talking in different languages, and it felt like something crazy was happening. And I'm sure they were, they were filled with fear, but could you imagine? I mean, they had a vision of Jesus. They had a vision from Jesus to make disciples across the world. It's this re-envisioning, if you don't know, uh, of the world being molded by God's love and by God's care that was first preached in Genesis 1.28, where God says, go and take dominion over the world, but do it really. The, the message is do it in my love and in my care. And now this re-envisioning of that same message has been given to them, a sort of rebirth to go and recreate the world through these 12 simple and uneducated men who had spent time and knew Jesus. But how? How was that even going to happen? What was it going to look like? They were 12 pretty basic dudes. And they were told by Jesus, before he flew into the sky, go and make disciples. Nearby, further out, and actually across the world. But can you imagine even more so the feeling of awe and amazement that would have come when within an hour of being filled with that same Holy Spirit Jesus promised and having Peter walk out to scream and yell into what seemed like an endless group of people, the goodness and the mercy and the vision and the promise of this Jesus. And within a snap of a finger, 3,000 new followers of Jesus had come. Jewish converts from all over their region who spoke different languages and it had different experiences. And with the snap of a finger, this re-envisioning started to take some, some wheels. It started to get some texture. And if 3,000 was the first hour, let's say, they better get prepared. Because what was the next hour going to be like? Or the next year, the next 10 years? That's what the book of Acts is for, if you don't know. And so they get together after that 3,000 has come. They start thinking, how do we organize this church? This group that had gone from 12 to 120 to 3,000 plus, and their first commitment is listen to the apostles. The apostles? Really? The apostles? I mean, they might have been thinking as Jews, we have Moses, we have the prophets, we have the Psalms. We have so much to center our lives around, and you're telling us to focus our attention on, on these guys? These guys. You mean like the poor fishermen, like Peter and John, 
Or do you maybe mean the tax collector, the one who works for the Roman government, Matthew? Or do you mean the crazy, conspiracy-laden, revolutionary Simon? These guys. Friend, this was hardly the star-studded, uh, you know, row of conference speakers that sells tickets. It was very much a, these guys? But you see, these men were the ones who had spent the last three years following, learning, eating with, and just absorbing the teachings and life of Jesus. They had seen him alive, and at least one of them in John had seen him very, really die. And then they had all seen him alive again. How? These simple men, their words and their stories wouldn't just be considered valuable by the early church, but from an early point in church history, their words, the words of poor fishermen, of tax collectors, and of, and of revolutionaries and conspiracy theorists would be labeled the words of God. Scripture on the same level as Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and in some way standing above them because it was their words, the words of the apostles, that would invite us to reinterpret and interpret correctly Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. How? Why? That's crazy. If a homeless person from the street walked in here right now and said, I speak the words of God. You'd all look at him like he was crazy. I know that because I would 100% look at him like he was crazy. I would feel the instinct as a shepherd to protect y'all from this crazy person. I'd be looking at Mike because I know Mike got the muscles. I'd be like, Mike, can you handle that, bro? Like, Mike, just strong arm that man, right? That's what I'd be thinking right away. I'd get these three young men over here and be like, hey, y'all want to show your strength? Can you handle this business for me? It's like work. It's like work. No, thank you, Jesus. Why? Why was this the case? It was because they were speaking of the one who embodied everything about the word of God and therefore about God himself. What do I mean? Well, to start, we need to understand the Jewish relationship with the idea of God's word, with the idea of the word of God. Unlike many ancient religions, for early Jewish followers of Yahweh, that's the, the name for God for them, right? They believed in an intimate relationship with their God that started with interaction with his word. It was his word that created everything in Genesis 1. And then across their story, God reveals himself to his people, not by appearing to them in some magical or fantasical way, but often by his word. You see this in something like 1 Samuel 3.21, where it says, the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh. Continued to appear because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his what? His word. They knew God is present and he's with us because his word is with us. But his word would also go on to reveal his plans. His word would reveal his plans to, to bless and to curse and would even guide the story of Israel, the story of the Jewish people along, like in Genesis 15, 4, when speaking to Abraham about his son Ishmael, it says, now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one, the one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And ultimately, right, they knew the Lord's word, that God's word had ultimate authority and that everything it said it was going to do, 
it was actually going to do. And that's why, it's, you know, texts like Isaiah 55:11 and 24:3, you can look those up uh, in your own time. They, they, they carry a certain finality. God said it, it's going to happen. They connected to God, right, not based on some idea, not based on a statue, not based on a monument, but they connected to God based on his word. So much so that when the psalmist envisioned God coming to help them and to rescue them, it was often still his word that the, the psalmist would envision. Like in Psalm 107.20 that says, he sent his word and healed them. He rescued them from their trap. So how fitting that when the apostles began to understand Jesus wasn't just another teacher, he wasn't just a failed Messiah, he was actually God, they began to associate him with the one way they had always connected with God, his word. And in John 1.1, John begins in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.14 says, and the word became Flesh, it's not on there, Jackie, don't worry. The word became flesh and dwelt. That literally means tabernacled, like the tabernacle in the old days, that the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling, his tabernacle, with us. What does that mean? Well, it means that like God's word had created, Jesus was that word that had created everything. And now he had come to recreate everything through himself. And that like God's word had revealed God, Jesus was now revealing God in his care with every moment of compassion and forgiveness, with every moment he cared for those who were marginalized, every moment he brought equality to the power structure, he was revealing God's love and care and mercy. And just as God's word, God's word had, redeemed, had revealed God's plan and redemption, Jesus now had revealed God's plan and redemption on the cross where he dies for sin and rises for the victory of God and the victory of God's people. That like God's word had absolute final authority. Likewise, Jesus had absolute final authority when he healed the sick and when he casted out demons and when he told winds and waves, calm down. And when the psalmist wrote that God had sent his word to heal and to rescue, it was Jesus who had come to bring healing and to rescue us. To know God's word for the people who were calling themselves Christians in this moment was to know God's word, friend. And in Jesus, the word is made flesh. God had become visible, touchable. You could hear his voice. You could feel his touch. You could be raptured into the story of God's love, the romance of his care and his compassion and his mercy, not just by reading the word or by hearing it, but by being touched by the word himself as he came and touched those that were broken and said, get up. Open your eyes. Hear. And these men, these 12 simple men who hadn't studied, who were not the greatest thinkers or writers of their time, who didn't hold degrees from world-renowned universities, hadn't just spent time in the Word. For the last three years, they had spent time with the Word. They had seen the Word in action 
They had heard the heart of God through the mouth of God sitting in front of them and telling them to sell a field and to, just, to, to, to sell all their belongings in order to pursue God, to love God and to love others, telling them that blessed are the poor and the meek and the hungry and the thirsty and telling them the peak idea of what it means to love me is to treat others as you yourself would want to be treated. And ultimately they saw the word at work on the cross as he died and cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And ultimately to say into your hands, I commit my spirit and say it is finished. They saw the word of God do all of that. They saw the word of God alive and ascend into heaven. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were called to share that story, to share his beauty and his power and his mercy and his kindness and his strength and his humility with the world. And that's always the way it was meant to be. That's always the way it was meant to be. You can even see that in, in a text like John 14, where in John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that's what we were just talking about at the beginning, right? He, he says, will teach you all things and, look at that, remind you of everything I've told you. That the word of God's own plan was for the the ones who had observed and taken in all that the word of God had done, all that the word made flesh had done in his mercy and his kindness, that the Holy Spirit was going to remind them of everything he had done and everything he had taught, and they were going to write that down, and they were going to share that with, with all of the early church, and they were going to say, I'm going to devote myself to hearing about this Jesus and the early community of faith, they valued these stories. They valued them as the very words of God because the stories, uh, because they were stories about the word of God made flesh. And these stories come together uh, with, as collections and we call them gospels. And then those gospels come together with the letters from the apostles that make up the rest of the New Testament. And those come together with the story of the Old Testament. And they bring together this big, beautiful story of God's redeeming love that starts in a garden, climaxes on a cross, and ends in glory. And then they say, this is the word of God. give you a history lesson on scripture. I'm sorry about that. For the nerds in here, you're like, that was fun. Some of y'all, you're like, this dude lost me a little bit ago. So that's why they came around and said, we're going to dedicate ourselves to the apostles' teaching. How? Why? Because these men were telling the story of everything else. Every psalmist, every prophet, every forefather, everyone who had said, I know God paled in comparison to these men because they got to see God. They saw him work. They saw his kindness. They saw his mercy. And they said, now let me tell you what we saw. Let me tell you what he said. Let me tell you what he taught. So that's it, right? That's the sermon. That's the lesson. Now we can say, hey, we're good. Go read your Bible. Get excited about it. You don't hold in your, in your hands or in your probably cheaply made electric device, right, the words of some random ignorant men. 
but you hold the accounts of people who beheld and, 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 and engaged with and were reminded by the gift of the Spirit of God to tell us what, what the Word of God, who He is, that God Himself came to save us, to be merciful to us, to be kind to us. But that's not how this story ends, does it? That's not how our story ends. Because for a lot of us, that's not our relationship with the Word of God. If we're being honest, the Word of God is actually quite challenging for us. Spending time in it is quite challenging for us. And for some of us in here, we're like, dude, I love the Bible. I happen to be one in that category where I genuinely really love the Bible. I collect Bibles. Some old men collect coins. This getting to be an old man collects Bibles. But for some of us, we don't look at each other and say, hey, I love the Bible. We say, man, the Bible is actually quite challenging for me. The Bible is actually quite scary for me. And if there were two words that I actually think could embody our relationship with the Bible quite well, it would be two words, and they both start with an A because I'm preaching to you. It would be that they involve anxiety and apathy. That oftentimes, while the vision that the whole Bible invites us into to having for the words of God given to us so we can know the depths of God's love and care and mercy, in reality, when we're confronted with that beautiful story, instead of it igniting our heart for the King and drawing us close to the one who has given his life for ours and is resurrected to bring us new life, when we approach these words, we actually approach them with anxiety and apathy. Anxiety because for so long, the story that I just gave you about the Bible is not the story you've understood about the Bible. For many of us in here, the Bible is not an invitation to the story of God's mercy and redemption and kindness, but you have seen it as nothing more than the book on which the gavel will drop depending on whether you fail or whether you succeed. And so opening the Bible for you fills you with nothing but anxiety because the voice you hear from the Bible is not the voice of the Word of God, but it's the voice of a father, a mother, a judge, uh, an authority, a principal, a teacher, an aunt, an uncle, a sister, a brother, or even just a friend that says, you didn't do that right. That was a failure. And so the thought of a word, of a book that is alive and is active and really contains the story of the king that shines the light of Jesus so brightly that every failure becomes evident doesn't sound like a welcome treasure. To you, friend, it sounds like an absolute burden. It sounds horrifying and it sounds terrifying because the words you receive, the voice you hear is not the one that comes from Jesus when you read it. The one that you hear is the voice of an angry, hurting person that hurt you and maybe left you kind of with that same thing where you're leaving a path of pain for others as well. So you don't open that book. You don't open this book. And it may even be that some of you, despite your commitment to Jesus, even these times, where we open this book and go, hey, let's explore it together. It's kind of scary. Maybe even this time fills you with anxiety. Not because you're like, oh, I'm, bo I'm boring. I'm, that may be true too. I'm, not, I'm definitely not opposed to that. I receive that. Um, but more so because you are so scared that what's going to happen when we say amen 
is that the result of your time in the Bible is not going to be a rush of wind that delivers fruit of God and the hope of the Spirit into your life, but is going to be a hammer and gavel leveled against you that leaves you discouraged and frustrated and lacking hope, so that when you go out into those doors, it is not the, the, the hope and freedom and joy of God that accompanies you, but it's the despair and judgment and discouragement of years of experience of people going, you're not good enough. You failed. You're not right get better, grow, come on. How did you do that again? How could you make the same mistake this many times? And friend, I want to lovingly tell you, that's not the voice that comes from this book. The men who were wrapped up in this story were not telling a story that was meant to hurt you they were telling a story that was meant to heal you because God doesn't see sin as something to come and judge in order to hurt you. He sees sin as something to come to forgive in order to heal you. That's the primary difference between those two voices that come from this book oftentimes. For some of us, we're, we're living in a post-anxiety world. Because you're like, nah, fam, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I'm done with being told that I'm wrong. I'm done with being told that I'm not good enough. In fact, I'm so done with it that I don't think I care anymore. So you've gone from anxiety to apathy. This idea that I don't care what this book says. I don't care what these apostles say. I don't care what the psalmists say. Bro, I don't even really care what Jesus says. Like, I'll come to church. I'll lift my hands. I'll be part of a community. I feel like this is somewhere I feel very safe. But the actual desire, right, the, 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 the commitment and the passion to say what this book says I'll submit to because I'm submitting to a good king and not a hurtful, bitter judge right, is one that you kind of relinquished. And you're like, I don't, that part I'm not really going to. I'll come, I'll be a part of community, I'll do that type of stuff, but, or maybe I'll explore church, I'll visit, or whatever the case is, but taking that step, actually, I don't, I'm not going to do that anymore. I just don't, I don't care. And to you, I want to overwhelmingly tell you that Jesus does not judge you. That Jesus is not angry at you. Jesus is not disappointed in you. Jesus is not frustrated with you. Jesus is not standing with his arms crossed, tapping his foot, waiting for you to get it together. But Jesus is a merciful and loving king who even now stands at the door of our heart and bids us, invites us, to come, to taste of a word, a taste of a vision for life that is meant for our good, that was always meant to bring life. And so often we do see in the Old Testament, I'm not going to run from the fact that in the Old Testament there are oftentimes judgments. But if you read the Old Testament, you don't take one note, but you listen to the whole song, that those notes of judgment are precursors to notes of rescue and notes of joy 
and notes of redemption where the prophets can say, man, God's going to come down hard on us, but then they'll follow it up by being like, but he will never forget us. He will never leave us. We are his. And that's what makes the birth of the king so incredibly beautiful, is that in the midst of even all of that negativity, all of the wrestling that's relationally going on in the Old Testament, the birth of that baby amongst animals, in the destitution of a barn is the signal that God has said, I have not forgotten you. I will remember you. And so even in our apathy, we're invited to see, to know, and to come to the king. And so how do we do this? Right? What do you do with your anxiety? What do you do with your apathy? Um, I want to answer that by telling you a story to, to close up. Um, and then from there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite us to respond to our anxiety, our apathy. Uh, from the basis of what we talked about as, as in God's word and what we're learning here, then also kind of based on what I, I hope you can take from this story. Um, this is kind of the thing I was trying to put at the beginning, and then maybe like on the drive over here this morning, I was like, no, nah, I'm probably going to put it at the end. Like I said, I'm still chopping through. Like, like I, I think I'm done now. This is the last thing I'm going to say, but I was very much chopping through this sermon, uh, even as I was kind of going, to be honest. Um, I want to share with you some of my experiences from this past week. So I mentioned, uh, that, and a lot of you already know, uh, that I spent this past week in Colorado Springs uh, Colorado, up in the mountains, uh, at a conference specifically aimed at the subject of prayer. And over uh, this week, we spent a lot of time praying. I mean, a lot of time. A lot of time. I mean, hours just seeking the Lord and setting our attention uh, on his face and inviting his spirit uh, to lead us into the truth and to reveal God's heart and his his, his love and, and really what, what he's doing in our lives and, and hopefully in our communities. And we did other things too. Uh, there was worship and there were people speaking about the subject of prayer. And there was like time where there was like this really fun idea of like building a vision for how we can implement prayer into our local church. And I'm excited about those things. I want to get those things started. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to the fruit that comes from them. Uh, however, truly so much of the time was spent simply seeking the face of the Lord. And being honest, um, it was that simplicity of seeking God that actually made the time so incredibly fun and so incredibly special. To see how God could take these simple moments like having my eyes closed and my hands open um, and invade them like light invades the simplicity of a dark room was absolutely incredible. And like someone in a dark room that's exposed to light, I was filled with a couple of feelings. First, I was filled with surprise. Second, I was filled with anticipation. Surprise, because it really was like looking up and being like, wow. Like something so simple can truly, in the hands of an incredible God, lead to something so powerful, and something so beautiful. Uh, and, and second, filled with anticipation, because it was just like... What are you going to reveal this time? What are you going to show me? Where are you going to lead me? And I was just encouraged. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. And while there were things I felt he revealed about me and about my 
perspective of him. Um, I, I'm definitely, no, I'll, I'll save that. I'm already a little low on time. Um, there was one area I kept asking him about, uh, and that was you. That was like our church. Uh, I was like, God, while I'm out here in this 70-degree weather, what do, you want me to, what do you want me to take back home to my church that's burning in this hot-as-hell summer? And uh, I kept praying, because I ain't going to lie, the first few days, I ain't, I ain't really getting in. I thought near the end, I was like, all right, I'm going to go home and just be like, guys, I love Jesus more than now. Uh, amen, and then just continue on. Uh, but like God, uh, I, I got near the end of the time, and I, I was asking for one word. I was like, even just a word, just an idea, just let me take something. And he gave me two uh, in the span of like 30 minutes. Uh, maybe that's just me. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I like to talk a lot. But I, I know that, that I felt like he had given me that. Uh, and I want to share those with you as we close up today. The first one is that I felt an overwhelming sense of thank you. Thank you. But, but it's, not, it's not the kind of thank you may, you may think. It's not the thank you that comes from a poor man to a rich man, but a thank you that I hope settles on your heart with the words of well done. That you serve and attend here not because it's so incredibly put together, not because we have everything beautifully made up. I've been looking at that gap in that curtain for the entire time we've been worshiping. There's also a massive hole in the back wall there. Oh yeah, we're in a cafeteria. <laughs> it's definitely not uh, how, how incredibly I preach. I know that's not the reason. But it's because you love God. And you want to meet Him. And you want to connect with Him. And wherever you are able to do that, you're committed to doing that in the best way and the way that you, you can grow the most in knowing him and in following him. And if that's in a church plant in a lower income area of Austin that meets in a funny looking cafeteria, then so be it. And in that way, I am so deeply grateful for y'all. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for modeling what it looks like to love Jesus and to love others. Uh, the second word, however, is kind of a riff off of that one, and it's the word uh, needed. That's kind of what I felt when I was praying for y'all. Needed. Uh, and it's the idea that in everything that happens here, you're needed. You're needed. I'm gonna, I want to just bear all with you. This church needs you. To live out what we feel we're called to, to see our communities transformed and to see like the gospel actually take root in someone's heart and in someone's life. We need you. I, we need your commitment and your love and your energy and your investment and your presence. And through that, this community and this city needs you. This community and city needs your compassion and your love and your wisdom and your presence. You are needed. And lastly, I want to be very honest. I need you. Like, I need you. There's nothing that fills me with more life. And this is super weird. Because I love my kids. And spending time with them is 1A on my list of things that bring me life. 
But man, I ain't going to lie to you. Really close behind on that list is seeing you here worshiping God. Really close on that list is that. And I don't 100% know if that's healthy. I don't 100% know why. I just know that spending time with my family in terms of anything beyond spending time with God is the number one thing that brings joy in life. But 1B is absolutely positively being around you as we follow Jesus together and seeing you worship and love and hearing your voice sing these songs that say he has freed me. And even some of us that are struggling saying, man, I'm going to say that just anticipating and entrusting that the God who is big enough to have freed me once is going to free me again. And just saying, man, I'm going to sing that. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to go to a small group. I'm going to come here. Every single bit of that, I got to say, fills me with overwhelming joy in life. And so I need you. Just seeing you participate in loving and following God is amongst the deepest joys of my entire life. And so in that way, I need you. I need to see you following and loving him to remind me of what we're doing and how important it is and how powerful it can be. This church needs you. This city and our community needs you. And I desperately need you. And that's I think that's why the Lord said needed. But I don't think that that response is meant to put pressure on you. I don't think that. I'm not trying to say, hey, be here every Sunday. I'm not trying to do that. What I'm, what I'm more so trying to do is say that, that he has given each one of you gifts and perspectives and experiences. And, and as we walk with those, right, we end up in this place where we can use them and, and, and they're available to us, but they're put to their best use when they're brought into the context of, of understanding our deep need for God, our deep need for the word, our deep need for Jesus. And so I, I felt, I'm not going to lie, I was torn between continuing the sermon series and just basically preaching this, and I tried to do it all at the same time. You could be the judge of whether it worked or not. I don't, I don't much care. Um, I think the invitation here is very much so that we are to be people that commit to the word. And that word is not just saying, hey, I want to read the Bible, because I know a lot of guys that are mad nerdy with the Bible, but their heart is far from the Redeemer. And I also know people who, who are not necessarily Bible geeks, but man, they love Jesus. And so I'm not talking about that, uh, but I am talking about having a moment where we deeply commit to the person of Jesus, where we say, my heart is fully yours. And if there are parts that I know are reserved off, God, I can only but ask you to cut those places open and to bring them to the front. And from that place of understanding our need and understanding the depths of his love and how the word of God did not come to judge us, to hurt us, but to forgive us and heal us, Right from that place of bringing who we are forward and connecting with God and giving ourselves to him in a spiritual way, in a mental way, in an emotional way, from there we can respond to the word you're needed in a healthy and really God-honoring way. And so that's what I want to give us time to do. Um, like several other weeks, we're going to spend time with... Um, and what we're going to do in that is I'm going to simply invite you 
to connect with God. That all of that stuff that I said about the word of God, like it's actually true, dude. Like I'm, I don't know how to communicate to you that there is a God who took flesh in the person of Jesus to save you and to know you and to forgive you and to heal you. I don't think that me talking about it can actually do it justice. I think the only way that becomes real is when, when we approach him on a spiritual and personal level. And so I want to invite us to do that today. Um, we're going to take time to just pray personally. We don't have communion this week. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I was what we like to call a miscommunicado. Uh, as a result, I'm kind of like okay with it just for this one week because I'd love to insert this in this time where I just want us to connect with God. And here's the thing. I don't want you to start by going, okay, Jesus, here I am. Yeah, I got to start talking. And like it's some type of verbal race because it's not. You have eternity with him. Your time of prayer doesn't need to be a verbal race. You have eternity to get to know him and to share your heart with him. Eternity. And so rather than start by just like verbal race, I want to just take some time and like we did before, just close your eyes and envision God. I'm going to pray for us and I'm just going to let us seek God. Father, thank you so much. Holy Spirit, meet us here in this room, this basic room with basic chairs, with experiences that we are bringing to you right now, knowing that in this room is the colliding ground where all of who we are, all of the pain and the struggle and the insecurity, all of the joy and the high moments, that they all come and in the midst of their speeding away in our lives are confronted by the rock of our salvation. The truth of the King who's come to heal, who was sent to heal and to rescue us. Holy Spirit, right now, make those things true in our hearts. Help us in here to even say words like, I love you, to you, and to mean them deeply. Help us, Father. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Spirit, to make real the words that we've spoken today and to enliven our heart in a way that believes these things and is connected to your heart. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.